so grateful to know of his promises. He's always with us, never leaves us. There's a story about the English explorer, William Edward Perry, who took a crew to the Arctic Ocean, and the crew wanted to go further north to continue their, their chartings, so they calculated their location by the stars and started a very difficult and treacherous march northward. They walked hour upon hour, and finally, totally exhausted, they stopped. Taking their bearings again from the stars, they discovered that they were farther south than they were walking north. And you see, they had been walking in an ice flow that was moving south faster than they were walking north. I wonder how many people think that their good deeds, their own merits, their own religious beliefs are taking them step by step to God when in fact I will tell you they are moving away from God faster and faster than walking toward him. And the tragedy of all this is that one day they find out like Perry's crew that all the time they've been moving in the wrong direction, drifting not toward God, but drifting ever so slowly away to an eternal damnation in hell. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word today. For Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Lord, we're grateful for these words of instruction, these words of warning. And Father God, we pray today that you will help us to understand it clearly by and through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we talked about previously in our introduction to the book of Hebrews, it's important to know which audience the writer of Hebrews is addressing. Recall we had said uh, several weeks ago that there are three audiences that the writer of Hebrews addresses. Remember, he addresses Jewish Christians, and we know that when we read the passages in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that he's not addressing Christians in this part of the epistle. In fact, uh, I will tell you that Christians can never be in danger of neglecting salvation because we already have salvation, right? Nor can the warning be to those unbelievers who had never heard the gospel because they can't neglect what they do not know exists. So the warning in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, must be directed to non-Christian Jews who are intellectually convinced of the gospel. In fact, they believe the gospel, they believe in Jesus. They believe in, in the Lord's death for their sins. They believe in the resurrection, yet they have failed to follow Jesus. They have the head knowledge, but not the heart knowledge. And recall we said last week there's about 12 inches that determine your eternity, your eternal destiny, from here to the heart. I will tell you, if there's not been a change in a person's life, if there's no change in the inner being of a person, that person is intellectually convinced that Jesus is real, but they are not saved. Jesus says in Matthew 7, verses 17 through 20, concerning those who are false prophets, here's what he says. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you shall know them. 
Jesus warns us in Scripture that that is the case. There are so many people in our churches today that are intellectually convinced that Jesus is who he says he is, but they've never applied that good thing to their hearts. They're not changed from the inside out. They will leave here lost as they came in lost. They will leave here unsaved as they come in unsaved. And I want to warn you that you cannot continue to gamble with your life If you are intellectually convinced that Jesus is who he says he is, you need to get saved. Some of you have no change in your life. None. You live the same today, all week long. You live for the devil. You never turn your life over to Christ. You are a bad tree. You're trying to produce good fruit, and good fruit will never come into your life. James warns us that faith by itself without works is dead. But the question is, if the warning is to these intellectually convinced Jews that have not yet become followers of Christ, why does the writer, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, why does he use the personal pronouns of we and us? Did you notice that? Is he including himself among these intellectually convinced Jewish folk? yet they're uncommitted to Christ? Is he saying that he is not a Christian? Absolutely not. The us is the us of nationality or of all those who have heard the truth of the gospel. You see, the author's willingness here to identify himself with his readers doesn't mean that he's in the same spiritual condition as they are. He's only saying all of us who have heard the gospel ought to accept it. We've all met people, have we not, who will say to us, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Savior, but I'm not ready to make that commitment. They have all the facts. They're like a man who believes the boat will hold him, but will not get into the boat. They refuse to. John MacArthur tells the story of a woman who came into his office one day, and she informed Dr. MacArthur that she was a prostitute. And she said, Pastor, I need help. I am desperate. I'm at the end of my rope. So Dr. MacArthur presented the gospel to her, and he asked her if she wanted to confess Jesus as Lord and begin to follow him. And immediately she said, yes, I've had it. I'm done with what I'm doing. I've hit rock bottom in my life. So she prayed, thanking God for saving her through Christ and received Christ as Lord and Savior. Then MacArthur said, Now I want you to do something. Do you have a little book or something that you have with you with all your contacts? She said, oh, yeah, I've got it. Great, he said. Let's take a match and burn it right now. Looking shocked, she said, what do you mean burn it? And MacArthur explained to her that if she had really met Christ as Lord, if she had really accepted his forgiveness, and if she really intended to follow him, then they ought to burn that book right now and just praise the Lord. Shocked, the woman says, but it's worth a lot of money. I don't think you understand. MacArthur said, oh, I understand. I'm sure it's worth a lot of money. With that, the woman put the little book back in her purse and said, I don't want to burn my book. I guess I really don't want Jesus, do I? With that, she left. When she counted the cost, 
she wasn't ready. She knew the facts of the gospel. She believed it. But she wasn't willing to make the sacrifice, even though, listen, even though what she refused to give up was worth nothing. And why in Jesus, except to him, was worth everything. There are many people who know the truth. They stand on the edge of a right decision, but they never make that decision. They just slowly but surely drift away. Perhaps that's you this morning. You believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You believe that he rose again from the dead. But you only have head knowledge and not a heart change. I pray this morning that you'll have a heart change. This morning we're going to examine three dangers in drifting away from the gospel. Number one, when you and I drift away from the gospel, you lose sight of the character of Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. This is an invitation that the writer of Hebrews interjects here, and he applies it directly to what he has already said about Jesus. You see, a true teacher of the gospel, a true preacher of the gospel must do more than just share biblical facts. We must warn people, we must exhort people, and we must then invite people to receive what we've just said. That's where the author of Hebrews is going. It's obvious that he is passionate. He cares about the salvation of his readers. He's not satisfied with just sharing doctrine and sharing the gospel, but he wants to invite them to receive what he has said to them. He desires for his readers to respond positively to the gospel. There are many times you and I, and I've done the same thing that you've done. We've shared the gospel with a person, but what I call we have failed in drawing in the net offering them an invitation to respond what they've just heard from our mouth. Now think about it. We need to be more passionate, don't we? We need to make sure that when we share the gospel, we say to them, are you ready to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior? And if they say no, then that's okay. We've at least invited them to do so. We can't make them receive Christ but we can certainly ask them if they are ready to receive Christ. And a lot of times we walk away giving them only the facts and we never invite them to receive Christ into their lives. Paul and Jesus were passionate. They didn't stop for the message itself. It was obviously important for them to share the doctrine of salvation, the good news. But they desired that their message would bring people to a saving relationship in Christ. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. This is one of the greatest passages, what Paul has said here, that I've ever read. Maybe you remember it. The Bible says, I tell the truth in Christ. This is Paul talking. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Did you notice what he said? I have great sorrow 
and continual grief in my heart. Listen, for our lost friends and our lost neighbors and our lost family, we should have continual grief in our hearts, knowing that they're not saved. I don't think we have enough grief. I don't think that we really believe that there's a hell. I'm not so sure that we really believe that they are, if they don't receive Christ as Lord and Savior, that they're not going to make it to heaven. Listen, we've got to understand that hell's a real place, and we don't want anybody left behind at the rapture. We don't want anybody to, to lose out on Christ because they've drifted away from the truth of who Jesus is. We cannot sit around and say, oh, well, that's just their business. No, it is our business to continue to share and invite them to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, whether they do or not. Whether they do or not. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. And despite the rejection of his own people, the hardness of their heart, the history of persecuting God's messengers, Jesus also ached for their salvation in his day. He desired people to follow him. In Matthew 23, verse 27, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. This is Jesus talking. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but they were not willing. John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. Jesus says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they that testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. So we can see our Lord's pain and grief, Paul's pain and grief over lost sinners. And with that said, listen, the entire letter of the book of Hebrews is referred to Hebrews 13, 22, as a word of exhortation, a word of exhorting people to come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, I want to point out the word therefore. Whenever you see therefore, go back. What did he just say in chapter 1? He said, Jesus Christ, he himself, he is the Son of God, he is the rightful heir of all things. He is the creator of all things, being at the beginning with God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact representation of the divine nature of God. He's the sustainer of the universe. He's the one that purifies us from all sin. He is the one who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is worshipped and served by angels. He is anointed above all others, the Lord of creation, the unchangeable, everlasting God. This is who Jesus is. Who could possibly reject him? I mean, Jesus was the very voice of God the Father. He was God in the world, and to reject him is in essence rejecting God. Now, I want to point out two Greek words for you that we need to examine. The first Greek word translated to give all the more careful attention. It's emphatic. It means that it is expressing something forcibly and clearly. In other words, on the basis of who Jesus is, we must, no choice, we must give careful attention to the things that we've heard about him. It's almost like a command. Because who Jesus is, it's like he commands careful 
attention of who he is by everyone. Secondly, the Greek word translated lest we drift away can be used to describe something slipping past or something that carelessly has been allowed to slip away. But both of these phrases, folks, have nautical connotations. The Greek word translated to give all the more careful attention means to moor a ship or tied up to the dock, making sure it does not drift away. The Greek word for drift away can refer to a ship that's been allowed to drift past the harbor because the sailor failed to properly chart the wind, the tides, and the currents. And with these meanings in mind, this verse can be translated like this. Therefore, we must the more eagerly secure our lives to the things which we have been taught, lest the ship of life pass the harbor of salvation and be lost forever. Listen, most people do not go headlong and intentionally into hell. Did you know that? They drift into it. Most people do not deliberately, in a moment, turn their backs on God and curse Him. Most people today just slowly, unaware of their situation, slowly slip past the harbor of salvation into eternal destruction. Listen, by the time this letter was written, countless Jews had heard the gospel, many directly from an apostle himself. Many, no doubt, were favorably impressed with the message they heard, maybe even intrigued by it. They heard it, and more than likely they even pondered it. But most did not accept it. We are reminded in Proverbs chapter 4, verses 20 through 22, the writer of Proverbs says, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their flesh. Let me tell you what this Bible is. It is, as the writer of Hebrews says, it is life who finds it. Life in this book. It is health to your flesh. In other words, when you hear the word of God, make it yours. Don't drift past it, for that is the most dangerous thing that you can do. I read a story of two young men fishing from a boat, and they were above a low dam on a river near their home. As they were concentrating on catching fish, these two young men were unaware that they had drifted and they were not far from the water flowing over the dam. When they realized their situation, the current near the dam had become so powerful, and their boat went over the dam as the water was dashing with great force over the great boulders and through crevices in the rocks, and caught by the water flow over the dam, their boat went over, killing both young men. Now, I want to add, these are not in your outline, but you need to write them down. Three things we should know about drifting. Number one, drifting requires no effort. None. You're just floating along, feeling good about life. Number two, drifting is an unconscious process. You don't even think about it. You're just drifting on. You, you don't even, you're not even thinking that you're drifting. But you're just drifting along in life. And number three, drifting will more than likely end in destruction. Every time. Number two, when you drift away from the gospel, 
you lose sight of the consequences of judgment. There's a certainty of judgment for those who do not follow Jesus by faith. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, the author says, For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now that Greek word for if assumes something has already happened. It's not a possibility like when we say, well, if this happens or if that happens. No, it's not a possibility. But the meaning here in this context is that the word spoken by angels was absolute and steadfast. Now the question is this. Why does the writer emphasize that angels were instrumental in bringing the Ten Commandments and mediating the Old Covenant? He does so because they were. They were instrumental in bringing up and bringing through Moses the Ten Commandments. And let me tell you something. I'm going to be honest with you this morning. Can I confess something to you? I got my little confession booth here. After many, many years of studying the Bible, I missed this fact. I don't know whether you guys, I mean, I always thought, well, Moses brought the Ten Commandments. Uh, I mean, Moses was the one instrumental, and it was Moses only. But it's clear from several Old Testament passages and from one New Testament passage that the angels also mediated the Ten Commandments and brought on the Old Covenant. Psalm 68, verse 17. The Bible says the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai, in the holy place. In other words, at Sinai, where Moses was given the law, and that's where the Lord met him there, obviously the Lord was accompanied by a host of angels. The Bible says here, thousands upon thousands. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, the Bible says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of holy ones. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. This would indicate, right, that angels were involved in bringing the law. And I didn't even know that. Did y'all know that? How many of you knew that? Some of you who are scholars, oh, some, some people knew that. Oh. <laughs> one, one person in the church, hey, I'm so glad, I'm so glad she knew that. But I'll tell you what, uh, I did not know that. And uh, it, it shocked me when I read this. And now, listen to what else happened. In the Old New Testament, in Acts chapter 7, verse 38, during Stephen's address to the crowd, he said, this was he who was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us. He reemphasizes it again in Acts chapter 7, verse 53. The Bible says that Israel had received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. So Stephen was also testifying to the fact that angels mediated during the time of giving of the law of the Ten Commandments and also instituting the Old Covenant. So both the Old Testament and New Testament tell us that angels were at were, were Sinai and were instrumental in bringing the law as well. Now here's the fact. Y'all want to hear the fact? If you broke the law, the law would break you. In other words, there was no way out of judgment. 
If a person committed adultery, if they worshiped false gods, if they blasphemed God in any way, they were stoned immediately. Judgment followed punishment. It was swift and certain. And that's why the author of Hebrews makes it clear that every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. Because the law punished every sin, and that punishment was fair. You say, well, how can that be fair? Let's look at the two words, the two words for sin, transgression. You know what transgression means? It means to step out of line as a willful act, an overt sin of commission, of intentionally doing something that we know is wrong. That's called the sin of commission, a a sin that, that we know is wrong, but we do it anyway. Okay, got that? Got that picture? Disobedience, it carries the idea of impatient hearing. It deliberately shuts its ears to the commands, to the warnings and invitations of God. It's a sin of neglect, of omission, doing nothing when we should be doing something. So we've got those two words, transgression, stepping out of line as a willful act, and disobedience, impatient hearing, not not opening up your ears to the commands of God, uh, a sin of neglect, of omission. Now, I want us to read a couple of passages. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus chapter 24. We want to read together verses 14 through 16. Leviticus 24, 14 through 16. Take outside the camp him who has cursed, Then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. My goodness, we'd have a lot of people stoned today, would we not? And whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Say, wow. Numbers chapter 15. Turn with me there. Numbers chapter 15. That's the next book over. I know these are your favorite books, so you know exactly where they're at. I know you love reading them. Numbers chapter 15, verses 30 through 36. But the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he is native-born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord, and he shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. Now while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him under guard because he had not been explained what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, The man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died. You say, that's unbelievable, Pastor. I I mean, the most little insignificant sin of picking up sticks on the Sabbath brought immediate judgment and death. Yep. Because this man deliberately defied the law of God. 
and the law of God was strong, could not be broken without judgment followed by punishment. How many kids in our households today have been disobedient to their parents? You know what they did in the Old Testament? All of them, every one of them. They took him out and stoned him. That's what they did. That's what happens. And, and listen, the reason why God tells us these things is to show us how horrible sin is and the consequences of it. Jude chapter, Jude 5, I should say, not chapter. Jude 5 says, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Severe judgment on unbelievers. But I want you to notice the word just, just reward. Do you know that today God is accused of being unjust? When his punishment seems to some of us to be out of proportion to the sin committed? But God, don't you understand? I just told a little white lie. Oh, God understands all right. Because listen, any sin separates you from the fellowship of the Father in heaven. And it's through Jesus Christ, who is our mediator, who is our lawyer, who is our advocate, that cleanses us from all sin and restores us to a right relationship with the Holy God. Now, I know none of you lie. None of you tell these little white lies. Gossip. Oh, that's a popular one in church. My wife and I have been talked about more in our 42 years of ministry inside the church than outside the church. And most of the inside the church, it's been negative. And that's okay because we sleep well at night because we know Jesus loves us. And we're okay, right? But God, by his very nature, listen, God, by his very nature, cannot be unjust. Under the old covenant, he punished severely. Those who defied him, those who denied him, he, remember, he removed them. Notice, every, every time they cast them away from the people of, of Israel for the sake of those who were pure and holy and wanted to live for him, his judgment upon Israel was severe because they knew better. Now think about it. Think about it. Judgment is always related to light. The more light we have, the more severe the judgment. You understand that? Jesus was clear about this in Matthew 11. Turn there with me, Matthew 11. We're going to look at verse 20 through 24, Matthew 11. We don't have Bible drills. Remember the old Bible drills? Man, I'll tell you what, those were fun, weren't they? Matthew 11, verses 20 through 24. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works have been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Cherison! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you, that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. 
The more light, the more truth that you have, the greater the judgment. They had seen the miracles of Jesus. They had witnessed the miracles of Jesus, yet they still didn't believe. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. Mark 12, 38 through 40. Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. The more you know, the greater the punishment for not abiding by what you know. Folks, I am not kidding you when I say this. Hell is a real place. In the New Testament, it's called a place of eternal fire, Matthew 25, verse 41. It's a place where the worm never dies and the fire is not quenched, Mark 9, 43 and 44. It's a lake of fire that burns with brimstone, Revelation 19, 20. It's a bottomless pit or abyss, Revelation 9, 11, and also Revelation 11, 7. Outer darkness where there is continual weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 22, verse 13. And black darkness, Jude 13. This truth of God's just judgment is stated in Hebrews 10, 28-29 when the writer says, Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And how much more worse punishment, do you suppose, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace. How much more, right? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great, so great a salvation? If disobedience to the old covenant brought just and swift judgment, how much more severe will the judgment of disobedience to the new covenant be? When we know that the new covenant was mediated by Jesus who is the Son of God, He's superior, He's preeminent over all things. The greater the privilege, folks, the greater the punishment for disobedience or neglect. And there's ultimately no escape from judgment if one neglects salvation in Christ. Do you understand that? If you are neglecting salvation in Christ, there's no other way for you to get to heaven except through Jesus Christ. And if you're neglecting Him, you're not going to go to heaven. Someone has written this very challenging description of an ever-present problem. I have never been guilty of wrong actions, but on my account, lives have been lost, trains have been wrecked, ships have sunk, cities have been burned, governments have failed, battles have been lost, and a few churches have closed doors. I've never struck a blow or spoken any unkind word, but because of me, homes have been broken, friends have grown cold, the laughter of children has ceased, Wives have shed bitter tears, brothers and sisters have been forgotten, and parents have gone brokenhearted to the grave. I've intended no evil, but because of me, talents have come to naught, courtesy and kindness have failed, and the promise of success, as well as happiness, has yielded sorrow and disaster. I have no sound, just silence, no cause for being myself. I have no offering to make except grief and sorrow. 
you may not call me by name instantly, but surely you are personally acquainted with me, for my name is neglected. There are so many people walking around today that have no clue on what's coming one day. They're living their lives as they want. They are not aware of the coming judgment from God. And they'll say to followers of Jesus, don't judge me. How many times have you heard that? But as we are living in the days of Noah, before Jesus comes for his bride, his church, they are in reality judging themselves, losing sight of God's coming judgment. And when the church disappears one day, they will recognize that they are in the wrong. And I pray that they will repent and come to Jesus as Lord and Savior in the most intense, most difficult time this world has ever seen. When you drift away from the gospel, you lose sight of the confirming promises of God. Did you know the promises of God are precious? They give us hope when things around us may be falling apart. Yet when you are drifting away from Christ and the gospel, God's confirming promises also seem to drift away from our thoughts as well. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 continues to say, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard it? You see, he's saying the gospel was confirmed. God's promises was confirmed through Jesus. And when Jesus preached the gospel, he did other things that make the gospel more believable like healing, like deliverance, like deliverance from demons and raising the dead. And Jesus said in John 10, 37 and 38, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. When Jesus claimed to be God in flesh, and did the things that only God could do. He not only confirmed his divinity, but also confirmed the truth of his message. On the day of Pentecost, Peter reminded his hearers in Acts 2, that Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested by God to you with miracles, wonders, and signs. And the writer of Hebrews describes those that heard it in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, when he writes, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. And this phrase, listen, this phrase, according to his own will, is inserted here partly to keep us from getting confused about the source of spiritual gifts. Because I will tell you that 1 Corinthians 12, 11, 1 Corinthians 12, 18, and 1 Corinthians 12, 28 say the source of spiritual gifts is God through the Holy Spirit. You understand that? About 21 years or so ago, Raynell and I did something really dumb. But while traveling through Houston, we decided, due to our curiosity, to stop by Joel Osteen's church that was located at the time in the Lakewood area. The music was inspiring. But his message left us completely unimpressed. No surprise, right? He just smiled and said, just feel good and feel good about yourself. And never opened the Word of God. And when he did open the Word of God, he misquoted a scripture in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. But what really surprised us 
was what was announced at the end of the service. Here's what they said. If you would like to learn to speak in tongues, please join us under the flagpoles and we will teach you how. What? This was as ridiculous as it was blasphemous. Gifts of the Spirit are according to His will and not to any of our own efforts. And the primary point in Hebrews 2.4 is that the apostles' gifts of the Holy Spirit were additional confirmation by God of their message, of His message, and their ministry. These gifts mentioned here, by the way, were all miraculous gifts. They were not all promised to believers in general. You don't listen to this now. In Acts 14.3, we read that Paul and Barnabas stayed there a long time in Iconium, and they spoke boldly in the Lord, and he was bearing witness to the word of his grace, and he was granting them signs and wonders to be done by their hands. In Romans 15.19, Paul talks about mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God that was on him in Jerusalem, all around the countryside, having preached the gospel of Christ. So as an apostle, Paul had the gift to do these mighty signs and wonders. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul reminds us by saying, truly the signs of the apostle were accompanied among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Now listen, these special works, therefore, belonged exclusively to the apostolic age, and they are not for today. Some of you are going to disagree and walk out and get mad. I don't care. Which ones aren't for today? Four of them. Healing, miracles, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. These gifts, I believe, have all ceased and have no need to exist today. And I'm going to tell you why. Don't get mad yet. There is no longer any need to confirm the gospel. You understand that? These gifts were given to the apostles to authenticate who Jesus was and to confirm his message and ministry. We now have a full revelation of God in both the Old Testament and New Testament. Think about it. There had to be some proof during those days that Jesus was truly the Son of God and Messiah because they didn't have the New Testament at the time. In fact, they were living out the New Testament themselves. I mean, even in the New Testament times, these confirmations were given for the benefit of unbelievers. You don't believe that? 1 Corinthians 14, 22, Paul says, Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. And you can disagree with me and say, nope, 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 I speak in tongues, great. Just don't do it here. Did I say that? Well, I've got the gift. Well, fine. We don't practice it here. We don't swing from chandeliers and jump pews. Do you know how confusing it is for somebody to walk into a church and that's all taking place? How scary that is? Well, what is what what have I walked into? These people have gone crazy. These people have gone nuts. And listen. I have a lot of Pentecostal friends. I've got a lot of friends in the Assembly of God churches. And listen, I love them, but I don't agree with them. Is that okay to, to love them? No. We, we agree with the gospel. We preach the gospel together. We agree with all that. We just don't agree with the practice uh, of all those things. 
There's nothing in the Bible that says that you can walk up here and I can touch you on the head and you can fall back and you're healed. Nothing. Show me in the Bible where that is. Show me in the Bible. He said, well, it's not there. Of course it's not there. Because those miracles were given to the apostles and, the, and those in the early days of the church to authenticate who Jesus was. And now people come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Do you know that there are approximately 8,810 promises in the entire Bible? And one of those great promises of God is concerning the gospel and the importance of not neglecting or drifting away from it. Do you know what it is? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But we, we stop there, right? We don't need to stop there. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Let it not be said of you and I that we've neglected Jesus Christ because neglect of Christ's salvation will cost you eternal blessing, will cost you eternal joy, and will bring you God's judgment and eternal punishment. Do not today drift away from the grace of God. How about it? Are you drifting away? Some of you may be doing so. You heard Edie's testimony a few minutes ago. She was drifting away, almost unknowingly, drifting away from the harbor of salvation. How about you this morning? Do not wait. I will tell you that we are running out of time. You're running out of time. You're running out of, of time because I will tell you that Jesus is coming back soon. He's coming again to get his church. You can see the signs all around us. You're running out of time because you're gambling with your life. How many of you know that this afternoon you may take your final breath? You could. Are you ready to meet Jesus? Are you ready for heaven today? You see, your sin has separated you from God. And as we said a while ago, sin will bring just judgment. But isn't it wonderful to know that we don't have to stone people any longer because of God's grace? For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We need Jesus. We need the Lord. We need God to come into our lives through Jesus Christ. And some of you are here today and you say, Pastor, I've never, ever received Christ in my life. I'd like to today. I want to follow Jesus. We're going to rejoice with you in your following Christ. Some of you need to do that today. Some of you have fooled yourselves. Well, you believed, and that's all I need to do, and I'm good to go. No, no, no. There's got to be a change in your heart, a change in your life. How can you neglect so great a salvation? The author asks. Today's the day of your salvation. Perhaps you're here today, you'd like to come and pray with us. We'd be glad to pray with you and seek God's face with you. Maybe you've got some issues in your life and you just need to pray. Listen, we need each other. We need our church family. We need one another. We cannot walk this life without one another. And you just need to pray. Seek God's face. We'll be glad to pray with you today. Aren't you glad today we've got a great salvation? Don't neglect it. Don't put it away. Don't drift by it. 
but accept him as your Lord and Savior. Let's stand together and pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. Thank you, Father, for all that we've seen and done and heard today. Thank you for the testimonies, Lord God, of these faithful saints here at Oak Hill. Father, thank you for all your blessings. Thank you for how you're going to bless us now in this invitation time, Lord. And we pray that all barriers, all distractions will stop. And Jesus will receive full attention to those who are here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If God speaks to your heart, you come.